start off. Uh, a few less people this week. It's, uh, it's been a fun two weeks. We were just discussing how we're leading into Section 3 after two weeks of this. And it's also only been two weeks that California has been in lockdown. It feels like two or three months. Uh, hopefully, we're giving you guys something to look forward to each week. And at minimum, we're enjoying doing this. So I uh, want to start off by thanking you all again for joining. Zara Thustra, I'm going to mute you. Go ahead. Now mute yourself, just real okay. quick. Uh, I'm, I'm getting a lot of feedback through you. Um, but thank you for coming to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective reading of Anti-Oedipus. We're now moving into section three, the subject and enjoyment. Uh, we're going to try to slowly start finding our way through a format, and I think we've started to figure out as we go, don't hesitate to join us in the discussion chat, uh, ask speaker questions, add an admin at any of us directly. Uh, we're happy to unmute you, have a discussion, or even just type quick responses. But I think uh, with that, we will go ahead and dive right in. Craig, would you like okay. to set us off with section three? Okay, so we're doing section three, the subject and enjoyment. Um, if you look in the discussion chat and go back a little bit, maybe I can pin this as a note for the time being. Um, I basically made a short outline of what I call production in general and anti-Oedipus. And I, I have it broken down into 13 steps, although it could be more or less depending on how uh, you decide to either explicate or... Um, make distinctions in this process. Uh, I'll say that maybe up to this point, if you look at my outline, we have gotten to uh, number eight on my list. And we'll recap those, of course, and then we'll go all the way to number 13. We're introducing a new machine uh, into uh, the desiring machines, the paranoiac machine, the miraculating machine, the new machine is the celibate machine. And we'll talk about what that means. <clears throat> also sort of a preview, um, we're going to see these concepts reiterated again and again throughout Anti-Oedipus. Uh, in section two, they will go into the productive series again uh, as the production of the three syntheses. And so there are some correspondences between terminology that we should kind of get straight as we go. Uh, but for the time being, know that we're talking about three series. And by series, I mean like ways of producing something. Uh, things that are being produced are also identified in these series. Uh, in the, the first series, we have the production of connections. In the second series, the production of a recording. In the third series, we have the production of this uh, some subjectivity or the production of a conjunction. And, and we'll talk about what that means today. Uh, before we get going, there's another thing that I want to touch on because there are some questions after the second, after our, our most recent discussion about the terms libido, Newman, and voluptus, I think I'm pronouncing that last one correctly. Um, it's important to know going forward that these terms are not synonymous with their uh, initial creation in the history of philosophy, although they do draw from it some aspects, and that's a big part of the way that Deleuze and Guattari do philosophy. So when the word libido is used here, it might seem like a... a, a like that we should immediately go to Freud. Are they talking about Freud's libido? I think the simple answer is no. However, there are aspects of Freud's libido and the dynamics of the libido that they're pulling into the theory. Uh, same thing with this word Newman. That word comes from a philosopher named Rudolf Otto, who's uh, 
famous for writing a book called The Idea of the Holy. And this idea relates to a sort of Kantian notion of um, a, a, a numinous dimension of reality. The way that they're using it here is different. They're not talking about a transcendent reality beyond that which happens in the imminent sphere of production. And this other word, voluptus, this is actually a new word for me. I, I did not research the origin of this word, but um, all, that, all this to say is that these concepts here don't necessarily designate anything sort of mystical or transcendent. I know this was a question that came up earlier in, in, in the form of some questions, but these are appropriated by Deleuze and Guattari and then reformulated as their own concepts. So that's just something that I want to keep in mind as we make connections to other folks' concepts. Um, is there anything else that anyone thinks they need to mention before we kick off the reading? Well, um, go ahead. This Andrew. is generally pleasure, I think. Pleasure. It's a part of a Greek sort of myth. I'm not really sure. I would love somebody who's more knowledgeable to jump in. But generally, yeah, pleasure or just kind of, yeah, pleasure deriving from love. Yeah, and that's going to be, I think, a significant aspect. That's something that I picked up on this, uh, my reading of this section this time, is the association between the conjunctive synthesis, the formation of some subjectivity, and this notion of pleasure. And I think the notion of pleasure itself has to be explained. I mean, are they just mm -hmm. talking about brute pleasure that we experience from, I don't know, having a bowl of ice cream or having an orgasm? Uh, I think some of that is in there, but I think they're talking about something a, a little bit different, too. Yeah, me too. I second that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, who would like to read the, the, the first page? <clears throat> Any volunteers? I will do it then. All right. So let's just kick it off, and then we'll have our, our questions and discussion. The subject and enjoyment. Conforming to the meaning of the word process, recording falls back on, say, Rabatsur, uh, production. But the production of recording itself is produced by the production of production. Similarly, recording is followed by consumption. But the production of consumption is produced in and through the production of recording. So right away, we should stop there and see that there's a linkage between these processes of production and that one comes from the other. This is because something on the order of a subject, also a good place to stop right now. Here they don't say specifically a subject, but they say something on the order of a subject. Later on, they're going to use subject, but I think it refers to this phrase. I don't think they're going to lock into a notion of subject here that's analytic with any other philosopher's notion of subject. This is because something on the order of a subject can... Uh, be discerned on the recording surface. It is a strange subject, however, with no fixed identity, wandering about over the body without organs, but always remaining peripheral to the desiring machines, being defined by the share of the product it takes for itself, garnering here, there, and everywhere a reward in the form of becoming or an avatar being born of the states that it consumes and being reborn with each new state. It's me, and so it's mine. Even suffering, as Marx says, is a form of self-enjoyment. Doubtless, all desiring production is, and of itself, immediately consumption and consummation, and therefore sensual pleasure. 
But this is not yet the case for a subject that can situate itself only in terms of the disjunctions of a recording surface and what is left after each division. Returning yet again to the case of Judge Schraber, we note that he is the God, or, I'm sorry, that he is vividly aware of this fact. The rate of cosmic sexual pleasure remains constant so that God will find a way of taking his pleasure with Schraber, even if in order to do so, Schraber must transform himself into a woman. But Schraber experiences only a residual share of this pleasure as a recompense for his suffering or as a reward for his becoming woman. On the other hand, God demands a constant state of enjoyment, and it is my duty to provide him with this in the shape of the greatest possible output of spiritual voluptuousness. And if, in the process, a little sensual pleasure falls to my share, I feel justified in accepting it as some slight compensation for the inordinate measure of suffering and privation that has been mine for so many past years. Just as a part of the libido as energy of production was transformed into energy of recording, Newman, a part of this energy of recording is transformed into the energy of consummation, voluptus. It is this residual energy that is the motive force behind the third synthesis of the unconscious, the conjunctive synthesis. So it's, or the production of consumption. Okay, so uh, comments before we begin. I think this is a fantastic uh, piece of writing here and also um, an important piece that helps us sort of summarize the processes of production and show their linkage, how, for example, the production of recording emerges from the production of connections and the production of the conjunctive synthesis comes from this production of recording. Um, they also link to the, the third series, as we talked about, this notion of pleasure. But Clearly, there's a connection between pleasure and suffering in this instance that we need to talk about a little bit. And I'm hoping that maybe, Andrew, you can say something about that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of blanking, but I would like to comment when sure. somebody starts the discussion. The, um, I, I, I have something to say about that, uh, which is that uh, one thing that should be kept in mind here is that... Uh, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, except the ideas of Bataille uh, in, in the accursed share, where uh, he talks about the difference between a general and a restricted economy. And, and what I noticed when I was reading this uh, today was that um, the, you notice that each, each there's, an econ, there's a political economy going on in, in between these machines. And each one is taking a share. And right. so that's the accursed share. It's an excess that comes out of, you know, you, you've got the first level of production and then there's some excess from that. And so that excess becomes the miraculating machine. And then that recording process, there's some excess uh, that's that comes out of that, and that's taken over to become the this uh, celibate machine. So I think I think the uh, uh, reading it in the context of Bataille's accursed share is a way to understand what he's what he's talking about better. Yeah, I, I think the the notion of surplus here is something that we need to talk about because they do bring in Marx too, and I think you're right to point out here that they're sort of highlighting the contours of what we would call political economy. Um, 
it seems that for me, like we're, we're talking about intensities, and this is a word that we'll get into more in, in the next paragraph, but there's in the sort of intersection in the crisscrossing of these lines of production and, and disjunction, there's this sort of, uh, I, I'd, I guess you would say, uh, um, an intensive de- derivative that's constantly returned, it seems, to the body without organs, that it, it doesn't seem like we uh, can surmise or, or fathom like what it is that's actually that goes back into the body without organs. You know, what does it derive something from this process? However, it seems that in our experience of this production, we do like, as you, as you mentioned, Ken, we do sort of arrogate a small share of that for ourselves. And that has to do with the the construction of what we would call our subjectivity. Yeah, I, I, th- I think in relationship to Marx, what should be kept in mind, and, and economics in general, is that in general, they're talking about rational economy. Mm-hmm. But, but in, in Bataille's case, the general economy are irrational economies. And so basically what a cursed chair does is it, it kind of surveys the anthropological literature and comes up with uh, examples of irrational, what to us seem irrational economies, like for instance the potlatch in uh, in, uh, in in Washington State and that that area uh, with the Native Americans, where what they would do is they would spend all year making stuff, making a surplus of stuff, and then they would have a celebration where they would destroy as much of it as they could, and the person who could destroy the most gain the most prestige from right. that destruction process. And and so, uh, and then, you know, he cites others, like, for instance, the, the Aztecs with their pyramids sacrificing people, mm-hmm. and also the, uh, the Marshall Plan, which, you know, he says is the first time in history the, lo- the, the winners actually gave stuff to the losers of a war. Mm-hmm. So, 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 you know, what... Ty's talking about is that there are all of these irrational economies out there that and so that that's stepping outside of normal Marxist theory or nor, normal economics to consider the whole panorama of possible economies, some of which have been uh, embodied. Okay, uh, Craig, I'm going to jump in because uh, I this section uh now that you're rereading it and having this discussion, uh, what I laughingly said might be a simple chapter, I'm now realizing I don't grasp at all. <laughs> so um, when, when we're talking about the subject wandering the recording surface and being born and reborn again, can you please expand on that uh, conceptually, how the subject, it, it, the reward is becoming a, having an avatar, it, becoming right. an avatar, being born of the states it consumes, reborn with each no state, it's me and so it's mine. Uh, please help me. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is they're avoiding talking about any sort of transcendent and or universal form of subject that's reducible to a form of individuality. They they want to avoid that because the the sphere of uh, production in general is an imminent sphere. Everything that's produced, it's an intensive sphere. Everything that's produced within that sphere is produced in virtue of all the other kinds of production happening inside that sphere. And what happens is, as um, these series of productions unfold, 
uh, namely this third series that we're talking about, this conjunctive synthesis where uh, some such subjectivity is produced in the process of production and as the sphere of production changes and as intensities are reorganized, there's a way in which that which we call subjectivity is um, forced to react to those events, right? Uh, the subject, I mean, the simple way to put it is the, the subject that we are socially constructed, right? So if we talk about it in terms of social construction, we are defined by the intensive coordinates uh, at which our own subjectivity is produced. But the we as individuals, for example, uh, are constructed not of an interiorized or even transcendent milieu. Basically, we are the intersection of all these milieus that we could identify, the environment being one of them, um, this massive milieu of uh, the coronavirus being one, uh, the milieu of the economy, cash, uh, the milieu of the ground that we stand upon, whether we live in um, you know, an area that has a lot of sand or a lot of dirt or a lot of you know, the, the mud through which we make adobe, all those things sort of constitute and, and the kinds of food we eat, right? They constitute who we are. And so who we are as, as individuals, meaning in flesh and body and in our own self-understanding is constantly moving in accordance with the milieus as those milieus transform. So I'd like to talk about, and I would like to pose a question regarding this uh, subject we raised earlier. And this is something that I think we cannot go further without defining better or more rigorously. So they say subject, but what do you think, Craig, could this subject be? Because some of these um, passages, right, from this very paragraph seem to imply a schizophrenic. Maybe, maybe not, but I'm referring uh, directly to this with no fixed identity. And right. then further to, just let me find this, the thing that Brooks referred to being defined by the share of the product it takes for itself, because this seems to me, at least, uh, it seems kind of similar to what we've all already read in the way the schizophrenic kind of adheres to what he pleases in the analysis, right? Maybe yeah, so... So let me flash forward to to chapter two, but it kind of covers some stuff we've already talked about. So this notion of Oedipus. So when we look at ourselves as individuals and with the, the sort of neurotic uh, brew of anxiety that all of us feel, and then, you know, at any given stage in our lives, it just becomes too much. And we decide we want to go to the psychoanalyst to become analyzed. Well, the Freudian psychoanalyst puts forward this notion of it of Oedipus, into which all of these anxieties sort of get swirled around. And the, the Freudian, they're trying to establish Oedipus, this sort of, uh, this, this missing object, whether for men, it's the, the mother with whom they want to have sexual relations, or for women, it's uh, the penis that they, they cannot have, uh, becomes this, this lost object. And this was a question that came up previously, like when we we're talking about Lacanian psychoanalysis as well. Like, um, does but somebody asked the question uh, after the most recent discussion, what do uh, Deleuze and Gattari say about the lost object? Well, there is no lost object. In fact, what they're saying is that the whole oppressive structure of psychoanalysis is pinned to this notion of a lost object. What there really is, is a lost subject. Subject, yeah. Yeah. And so when we think of the, the subject in terms of 
uh, Deleuze and Guattari, I, I like going back to the term some such subjectivity, something on the order of subjectivity, because I think it's very easy at any moment to pivot and just say subject and think of something um, that, you know, from, uh, you know, conventionally understood as a subject or something from the the history of philosophy that we previously understood to be a subject. This is not what they're saying. In fact, this is the thing in their philosophy that's constantly under threat. And if if I may if I may add something, because you jumped ahead to uh, chapter two a little bit, we're going to eventually see once we see these syntheses again, there are two uses of the synthesis of conjunction: a segregative use and a nomadic use. And part of what we're going to see is that there is a difference between Oedipus assigning you to a given subject. You are a child of these parents. You are the father of this person or the mother. You are the grandparents or grandchildren of this person. And it sets up these pre-established relations that you don't really have sort of a choice of the matter in. I think the this is very simplified. The way I try and think of a different kind of subjectivity with regard to that is like me doing philosophy. I'm, I'm plugging up to a bunch of different texts all at once and distributing those connections in very different ways. And the result is just, Oh, this is what I am, or this is what the thing that I've produced is. And there's not sort of a, the question that comes after that is, well, what, what are you? Oh, I'm a philosopher, but what is that? It's not, sort of a given in terms of pre-established coordinates in a social field that's given in terms of, well, what are my connections and what are my disjunctions? And what is a philosopher depends exactly on what are my connections? What are my recordings? Not what's established as these are the connections that everyone faces. These are the disjunctions that everyone has. There's a different use of the synthesis happening. But in either case, there is a kind of subject that's produced, but it's different kinds across the two types of syntheses. Oh, that's good, Saki. Yeah. Well, actually, I think that leads right into the next paragraph. All right, um, let's do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a read. Mm -hmm. Go for it. We must examine how this synthesis is formed or how the subject is produced. Our point of departure was the opposition between desiring machines and the body without organs. The repulsion of these machines, as found in the paranoiac machine of primary repression, gave way to an attraction in the miraculating machine. But the opposition between attraction and repulsion persists. It would seem that a genuine reconciliation of the two can take place only on the level of a new machine, functioning as the return of the repressed. There are a number of proofs that such a reconciliation does or can exist. With no further details being provided, we are told of Robert Gee, the very talented designer of paranoiac electrical machines. Since he was unable to free himself of these currents that were tormenting him, he, gave, he gives every appearance of having finally joined forces with them, taking passionate pride in portraying them in their total victory, in their triumph. 
Freud is more specific when he stresses the crucial turning point that occurs in Schreber's illness when Schreber becomes reconciled to becoming woman and embarks upon the process of self-cure that brings him back to the equation nature equals production, the production of new humanity. As a matter of fact, Schreber finds himself frozen in the pose and trapped in the paraphernalia of transvestite at a moment when he is practically cured and has recovered all his faculties. I am sometimes to be found, standing before the mirror or elsewhere, with the upper portion of my body partly bared and wearing sundry feminine adornments such as ribbons, trumpery necklaces, and the like. This occurs only, I may add, when I am by myself, and never, at least as far as I am able to avoid it, in the presence of other people. Let us borrow the term celibate machine to designate this machine that succeeds the paranoiac machine and the miraculating machine, forming a new alliance between the desiring machines and the body without organs, so as to give birth to a new humanity or a glorious organism. This is tantamount to saying th that the subject is produced as a mere residuum alongside the desiring machines or that he confuses himself with this third productive machine and with the residual reconciliation that brings about a conjunctive synthesis of consummation in the form of a wonderstruck. So that's what it was. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. I, I'm tempted to, to work this paragraph backwards, but in my reading of it this time, I really picked up on something at the beginning of the paragraph. So they're talking about um, how, despite the fact that there is the um, production of this miraculating machine, um, there is an opposition, the, the attraction and repulsion, a dynamic that happens at the level of the desiring machines trying to break into the body without organs persists. It continues to stay in place. So the next question is, well, then how is it that something else is produced out of that? Um, and this would be like, if I were attacking this philosophy, this is where I would ask that question. Like, okay, so you have this one thing. How is it that it produces something else? And this is where I'm going to go back and I'm going to bring Marx back because they're talking about a form of pleasure or enjoyment. There's a, a tension that exists that's almost demanding of a reconciliation. And it's in the process of, of achieving or seeking that reconciliation that we do bring about this thing called the celibate machine. And the way that I'm reading it here is that the celibate machine, it doesn't resolve the tension. It almost encloses it. And we'll find out about this later on when they start talking about Kafka in, in the penal colony, how that behind every celibate machine, there's a hidden paranoiac machine behind it. So when we think about subjectivity, it's almost as if it's a construction of intensive binaries that sort of build up and almost like I kind of think about it in terms of pressure. If if the where the desiring machine meets the body without organs or tries to break into it uh, constitutes some sort of node of antagonism or pressure, then it follows that subjectivities are basically compositions of those antagonisms trying to, or in fact, reconciling or resolving themselves in a way that, that produces some kind of pleasure. And I'm put that in quotes because, like I said, it's not like ice cream eating pleasure. And I'm curious if somebody wants to follow that. And this pleasure you're speaking of, it really correlates with what we've learned about Judge Schreiber from the last um, 
from the last paragraph, actually the very end of it, when they speak of Traber, right? And they say that it's not the full pleasure, it's not the usual type of pleasure, it's kind of derivative, right? The kind of production of something else while something else is going on, etc. Right. It really works with what you try to highlight here. Yeah, I mean, they use a, a few different words um, to to characterize this pleasure. Mm -hmm. One is wonderstruck. It's almost the feeling of awe at seeing like, ah, I didn't know what this was all along, but now I get what's happening, right? It's almost like, imagine a jealous lover looking for clues to find out whether or not mm -hmm. their partner is is has committed infidelity. And then they find the final clue that puts everything together. That's the kind of pleasure that we're, we're experiencing here. It's almost like a pleasure in a kind of pain. And this, um, uh, so it's yeah. a retrospective kind of recognition yeah, but and they're they're avoiding this term recognition because it connects with Hegel and the notion of negation. I and think not only that. I think that recognition um, connects with something fixed or a kind of yeah. truth which is omnipresent. And what I wanted to add to this wonderstruck uh, word, you know, you know mm -hmm. that you mentioned, is that it really correlates with what we've seen about the uh, schizophrenic versus the neurotic when they're dealing with the analyst, right? Whereas uh, the neurotic is suppressed, the mm -hmm. schizo can find something for which he can say then later, hey, that's what it was, that's what it is, right? That's right. Retrospective is the correct connotation, I think. I think because so. Because mm -hmm. what... Yeah. Like, Deleuze writing in Proust and Signs about what it is to take yeah. apprenticeship to a sign. And we, we need not get into the specifics of that concept, but there is this point of someone takes apprenticeship to something that they just do not understand. And they may go for a long period of their life trying to get it, not really getting it at all, and moving on with their life, even failing, and suddenly by encountering something else, everything is all of a sudden recalled, and they go, oh, that's what, like I was learning all along. There was always an apprenticeship happening. I didn't ever give it up. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's coming into this book with Guattari trying to bring in that sort of connotation, that sort of move of the, the afterward retrospective movement. And uh, I would just like, it's not connected to this, but somebody um, earlier asked about the celibate machine. How can it be a celibate when it implies a kind of lack of, lack of pleasure? And then uh, somebody else in the chat pointed to the fact that celibate is a translation of, I'm not going to pronounce it, which can also be rendered as bachelor, right? And mm -hmm. we're going to see how this connects to Kafka later when they bring up the uh, example. Just if anyone was wondering. Yeah, that's good. Could, could I ask a question? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, this is sort of, this goes back to a thing that we've talked about previously, but this is kind of where I struggle with a little bit of the framework that I think was it Craig sent with the 13 points. Because on the one hand, it does seem to be that they're saying, you know, subjectivity comes into this third phase. But even at the end of that paragraph, when it finishes on page, top of page uh, 18, the, the the state of a subject saying so that's what it was doesn't that kind of inherently 
imply a, a previous state of subjectivity, whether you know completely conscious or aware or whatever it is, in order to be able to sort of articulate that sense of. Because I think later they talk about discovering this like deeper truth that is kind of placed there by this ethicalized framework, and just going to the beginning of the section three when they say the production of recording itself is uh, like this is the whole process is what we're talking about is the production of recording the production of production wouldn't this be referring to the, you know the production of the real in the first place and so if, if that's what they're talking about then that is they're sort of when they say this a kind of subject <clears throat> is discerned on the recording surface to me that indicates yeah not not subjectivity with a capital s but a form of uh, yeah, the the unconscious or awareness that precedes the conjunctive moment where a subject can uh, sort of re-articulate itself after the celibate machines and all these things have sort of resolved or falsely resolved these contradictions. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm wondering if in your question, I don't think you are, but it could be understood as maybe we're presupposing that somehow consciousness is, is, or the, the potential to, to be conscious or to, um, to undergo this conjunctive synthesis somehow makes that, that pulls that in, in, into the production in general as a sort of primary mode of production. I, I think it's very telling that they put this one at the end. And, and what they say is, is that this process of production the conjunctive synthesis that is is happening in the periphery. periphery. So, right. and and as we get to the Nietzsche section, they'll say that it has this sort of um, oscillator like swoop quality. Is that as the whole productive edifice keeps producing all kinds of stuff, connections, recordings, and other conjunctions, that the, the conjunctive syntheses are being like swept along by it. So they they themselves are constantly changing. Uh, those sort of nodes of, of conjunctive synthesis, that is. Um, and they, they are tentative, and they use the word metastable. So they are stable insofar as the, the sort of tentative network of uh, productions and recordings themselves are stable. Mm-hmm. And this is a... Okay, I'm not going to go into this. Sorry. No, but... go in. Go into it. No, I mean, uh, Simondon actually has a concept of metastability before the <clears throat> ontogenesis, but I think that's a completely different route from what we're doing now. Okay, sounds good. Uh, uh, I'd like to I'd like to just mention that you know this thing about uh, uh, you know the the that surprise is part of information. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> and also the other thing is the. Uh, you know, uh, certain philosophers say that philosophy itself comes from wonder. You know, and so, and so, you know, it, it you know, you can see this as a a kind of realization mm-hmm. that's occurring uh, in the person who is, uh, you know, looking at the phenomena in their body, uh, yeah. and 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 suddenly realizing, oh, that's what it means. Oh, that's- and that, that, that was sort of my question as well, because in the narrative itself, they refer to it as the state after Schreber has gone through all these other things, and he's almost cured that he's starting to understand himself in this way. So, if we don't, for, if we don't point to any form of subject formation before that, then what is everything else that Judge Schreber went through? You know, to me, that sort of they're pointing to an earlier form of this 
schizophrenic or other undifferentiated kind of subjectivity that is emerging from the body without organs and the way it redistributes things and records things. Because if yeah. you don't include that, then you're just jumping straight to that final sort of reified like stage. That's why I'm getting confused. Oh, I see see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, there, that's an interesting question because the way that it's laid out here, the, the series of productions, um, they, they follow from one another, right? Uh, but at the same time, in other places, they will say that, you know, these, these processes of production are happening simultaneously and in some sense are coextensive with one another. Um, for the schizo, basically, I, I think what's happening is they are sweeping all of the conjunctions that 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 occur um, in any given set of productive series. But it's only the figure of an analyst or someone acting similarly to the analyst that's trying to institute some sort of fixity on any level or on any one of these conjunctions. And I think that's that's what's happening here. I, I mean, I don't know if there's any um, sort of necessary or foundational subjectivity that's addressed. I, in fact, I know that that they're not. I'm I'm right now. I'm groping to find a better way to argue for it. But I think one of the things that Kent brings up is important here, is because this idea of surprise or being wonderstruck it uses the paranoiac process or it encloses it. I mean, there maybe there's a better description between those two, but there's always this existent tension between the desiring machines and body without organs. That's never, um, that's never undone by any conjunction. So it's not that any sort of idealized uh, identity or subjectivity is actually achieved. If anything, it, the, the notion of surprise or, or being wonderstruck, it, it closes or fully suffuses this, this, this other paranoiac tendency. And it seems to me that if anything is unsettled in any other part of the productive series, those, those uh, other paranoiac machines will be revealed as the subjectivity or some su such subjectivity is broken down. So I don't think we ever get to a place where we have any sort of presupposed, stable, transcendent, universal form of, of subjectivity. Um, I, I just don't see it coming in on the philosophy and I don't see how it has to be presupposed. I, I'm curious why we might think that it has to be. Well, I'd well, just I can, like, to, I just like to mention that the, uh, you know, I think it, it, what we're talking about here is a whole series of realizations, not just one at the end. Right. Yeah, so, I, yeah I, I guess. I, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead, uh, Park Bench. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this last bit so that I can give other people a chance to talk. But sure. I guess what I'm what I'm pushing for, I don't I'm not looking for some kind of originary subject. I think, in fact, the whole thing that interests me about this whole framework is how it exposes the falsity of that notion. I guess I'm just, it's just a sort of logistical question because in one sense, I think you're right. And they repeatedly point out how all these processes are sort of happening almost simultaneously or one after the other. And they kind of go through themselves over and over again. I just wonder if, and I, I see to your guys' knowledge, because clearly you're a lot more uh, well-read in these things, but it seems almost like a mistake to me from the way I've read it so far to, to, if 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 they talk about the process of recording itself being the the, the creation of the real, then it doesn't say, may, seem to make sense to me to say that a form of subjectivity only comes into play at this so-called third phase, which we know isn't actually a sequential third phase. But 
that that the process of recording itself is sort of the creation of the unconscious mm. through the conflicts of all these machines. Um, and so I don't know. It's uh, that's why I feel like I'm missing here. But I will I will step aside for a bit. Oh so no I no! I think you actually hit upon something really important. No, just thinking about it because the the production of the recording process, I think in terms of subjectivity, mainly has to do with the force of attraction and of repulsion, those things at this point um, cannot be disentangled if we're talking about subjectivity. But if there is any quote-unquote prior, uh, the notion that productive forces are attractive, attracted to the body without organs, I don't think necessarily implies a notion of subjectivity in order for that to happen in their metaphysics. Um, I mean, granted, at, when, we, when we finally come to the stage in history, where capitalism is emergent, and um, you're and you have a production of the body of capital at that stage in history, there are already conjunctions that are pre-existent. I think those things get factored into uh, the production of any sort of thing that we understand to be capitalist subjectivity. But I don't think it's necessarily the case that any subjectivity needs to be prior to the uh, the production of this uh, attraction repulsion machine. At least, I, I mean, them laying it out on the page, you know, like they're going to have to talk about things in an order. But I think in the end, they're, they're going to say that these things are, the, these productive processes are just happening simultaneously. But yeah, maybe really, important. Yeah, go ahead. This coincides with, I mean, sorry if I'm repeating myself, but uh, Gattari and Schizoanalytic cryptographies <clears throat> deploys this uh, sort of meta modeling graphing sort of you know with uh, four points and then he goes like a kind of uh, from the bottom right corner to the again to the bottom right corner and then that maybe the third quarter of the book he says so let's reverse this right so i really think that you're hitting nail on the head here when you say that these processes are simultaneous and i think they are and not just that they presuppose a subject but that they create a subject in their simultaneity and in their uh, processes that come right after the other and that coincide in certain aspects. Yeah, that's good. Shall we move to the next uh, paragraph? No, I, mean, well, I can do it. Go for it. So, Michelle Carouge has identified a certain number of fantastic machines celibate machines, quote unquote, that he has discovered in works of literature. The example he points to are of many different sorts, and at first glance, did not seem to belong to, any, to a single category. Marcel Duchamp's painting, uh, The Bride Stripped Bare by her bachelors, even the machine in Kafka's in the penal colony, Raymond Roussel's machines, those of Jerry's, Sommel, certain of Edgar Allan Poe's machines, Villiers, The Futures, Eve, etc. The characteristics that allow us to classify all of them in this one category, though their importance varies according to the example considered, are as follows. The celibate machine, first of all, reveals the existence of a much older paranoiac machine, with its tortures, its dark shadows, its ancient law. The celibate machine itself is not a paranoiac machine, however. Everything about it is different. Its cogs, its sliding carriage, its shears, needles, magnets, rays. Even when it tortures or kills, it manifests something new and different, a solar force. In the second place, this something new, 
uh, in the second place, this transfiguration cannot be explained by the miraculating powers the machine possesses due to the inscription hidden inside it, though it in fact contains within itself the most impressive sort of inscriptions, the recording supplied by Edison for Eve Future. In future, a genuine consummation is achieved by the new machine, a pleasure that can rightly be called autoerotic, or rather automatic, the nuptial celebration of a new alliance, a new birth, a radiant ecstasy, as though the eroticism of the machine liberated other unlimited forces. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And I think that we've arrived at the kernel of the celibate machine here. If we don't get this right, <clears throat> Many of the things following this section won't really make any sense. Yeah. So, so I, I'd like to mention that um, you know one way of thinking about this is as a model of an emergent event. In other words, mm -hmm. you know, you're in the in this uh, production of the celibate machine. We're moving to a new level, which has its own laws, its own uh, way of working uh, that is emergent. And uh, so I, I see this as a model for emergence. Yeah. I think just very simply, it's important to understand why it's called a celibate machine. Like, why did they choose that word? And they're, they're talking about Duchamp's painting here. Um, because in, in this painting, um, The Bride Strip Bear by her bachelors, even, uh, we have the consummation of a marriage, presumably. If, if, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe there's somebody in the comments who can say something about that. But regardless, um, the celibate machine refers to this process of conjunctive synthesis, which also refers to what they later call consumption and uh, consummation. And so it's as if the series of intensities that produce a sort of a, a local grouping of intensities, uh, a nexus or a node, um, through the tension that it that it undergoes, achieves uh, a reconciliation of that tension through a consummation of that intensity um, in the form of this celibate machine. Uh, you know, basically a bachelor uh, consummating the marriage with the bride. I'm guessing. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know much about the painting. Just, just to go back, just to go back to the idea of emergence. I think that the, you know, the, what I related to, is the idea that uh, that when the emergent thing arises, mm -hmm. then suddenly it has rules and it has elements that the, you know, are informed by the lower level uh, pre-emergent things that existed, but it's on its own as a new thing that stands. That stands by itself, and I think that's to me that's the meaning of celibate. Mm. <clears throat> Interesting. Um, I I think I'm trying to um, improvise some examples here of of how 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 something is uh, consumed or consummated uh, in the form of an identity. I mean, I'm thinking about the of a child, for example, and the naming of that child um, and the, you know, bringing it into the family and making it a member of the family. Or even um, I know here in Los Angeles, I used to work in the party business. A lot of uh, Mexican and Mexican-American families have a one-year birthday party for their their uh, their child because to make it one year, wow, what, what a thing to, to be able to survive for one year. And how those, those kind of events that we have socially 
institute an understanding of a subject, the birth of a child, its first birthday, uh, graduation, and how these uh, events constitute the subject through various kinds of um, what Deleuze and Guattari will call order words or linguistic events. I now pronounce you man and wife. Boom. Mm-hmm. Now that is a consum- that that relationship is consummated. Uh, by the priest, okay, and now here it is in in the um, it, it's back to the hotel after the reception for them to consummate the marriage. Once again, another sort of uh, linguistic act. Oh, I'm sorry, so it looks like somebody else wanted to jump in on that. No, I guess not. I'll 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 say something. You know, a a a, uh, a, a resource for. Uh, thinking about emergent events is G.H. Mead. He wrote a book called The Philosophy of the Present, in mm-hmm. which he uh, uh, talks about emergent events. Mm-hmm. And uh, and basically what he says is that an emergent event, when it occurs, the uh, history has to be rewritten. And there's new affordances that are possible in the moment that didn't exist before. And but, future possibilities change uh, in the emer- for the emergent event. Doesn't this, this also, also return us back to the question, though, about like retrospective um, understandings of particular processes, right? So I, I'm thinking when when you said like there's an emergent event that alters the way we perceive kind of past events, I'm thinking about Europe 1918 political happenings must have been reframed in kind of the milieu of a post-war Europe. So that's what that transgression by that particular uh, political figure meant. This Mm. is what led to that. So I'm wondering, you know, if if we're supposed to not engage in that sort of, uh, at least with this text, that sort of like, uh, ability to recognize some sort of like static entity and say like oh so like this is what it was it was all leading up to to this point to this apex right what are we supposed to but i don't think that do. so leading up to this i just i wanted to add that this uh, this notion we're talking about the emergent event also uh, makes me think about the encounter that talks about these remarkable encounters, right, that are really valuable. And this can also be connected now that I'm reading all this, uh, that we're reading this aloud, right? Uh, this makes me think of the realization we talked about earlier, right? So maybe this emergent event connects to what we identified as, so that's what it was, right, in whatever scenario. Yeah, I, th- I think that the, the one way to think about it is that once the the emergent new emergent regime regime with its own organization arises, then it kind of is a basis for re-understanding everything that went before and how those things that went before are the embodiment through which the emergent event appears. Yeah, that's right. So, like, like for instance, an emergent event is the appearance of life. I mean, evidently, there was only ever one appearance of life, but 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 once life appeared, it kind of uh, reorganized everything and gave a whole new meaning to the physical uh, manifestations of the universe that that prepared for it. 
and we're mm -hmm. still trying to try to understand how life could have possibly uh, emerged. Let's go ahead and uh, dive through the next chapter. I think uh, anyone want to read that? I'm I'm happy to read. All right, Saki. The question becomes, what does the celibate machine produce? What is produced by means of it? The answer would seem to be intensive quantities. There is a schizophrenic experience of intensive quantities in their pure state, to a point that is almost unbearable. A celibate misery and glory experienced to the fullest, like a cry suspended between life and death. An intense feeling of transition, states of pure, naked intensity stripped of all shape and form. These are often described as hallucination and delirium, but the basic phenomenon of hallucination, I see, I hear, and the basic phenomenon of delirium, I think, presuppose an I feel at an even deeper level which gives hallucinations their object and thought delirium its content. And I feel that I am becoming a woman, that I am becoming a god, and so on, which is neither delirious nor hallucinatory, but will project the hallucination or internalize the delirium. Delirium and hallucination are secondary in relation to the really primary emotion, which in the beginning only experiences intensities, becomings, transitions. Where do these pure intensities come from? They come from the two preceding forces, repulsion and attraction, and from the opposition of these two forces. It must not be thought that the intensities themselves are in opposition to one another, arriving at a state of balance around a neutral state. On the contrary, they are all positive in relationship to the zero intensity that designates the full body without organs. And they undergo relative rises or falls depending on the complex relationship between them and the variations in the relative strength of attraction and repulsion as determining factors. In a word, the opposition of the forces of attraction and repulsion produces an open series of intensive elements, all of them positive, that are never an expression of the final equilibrium of a system, but consist rather of an unlimited number of stationary, metastable states through which a subject passes. The Kantian theory, according to which intensive quantities fill up to varying degrees matter that has no empty spaces, is profoundly schizoid. Who would like to dive in there? It's a... I mean... Uh, I can try and point out one of the <laughs> one of the main points of this section of this uh, paragraph, right, which was alluded to even in the previous paragraph, and these are the intensities. And the when I was reading and when I was preparing for this section, I really saw how, on multiple accounts, they highlight how this celibate machine has a kind of higher or bigger intensity than the previous machines, 
if those machines even had intensity. And what they say in the previous paragraph is some kind of genuine consummation, right? Implying that these previous ones didn't have a kind of genuine consummation or a less genuine consummation. So I think that this intensity really is an important point of reference. Uh, also with the inability to reach the final equilibrium or what I uh, heard earlier being referred to as a kind of reconciliation. I think that this is pivotal for Deleuze and Gattari because there is no final equilibrium. There is just the eternal mishmash of the uh, what, what terms do they use? Whether it is production, anti-production, or whatever. They use some different terms here. Uh, I don't have the highlighted version here. Oh no, that that's great. Go ahead. What's that, Brooks? Well, it's, it's so, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I should start diving into some of the questions I have, because it, it really does, my big thing yeah. in this whole section is ultimately about uh, when we're talking about miraculating machines and paranoiac machines, ultimately what they produce, and then effectively a dialectical combination that produces celibate machines, and celibate, the celibate machines produce intensity. There mm -hmm. is... The, the complexity of this entire concept, I know there's more there's more paragraphs to get through that add a little bit of color, but for me, it's um, we're talking about on the, the one side, the paranoiac machine that is uh, uh, ultimately production, and then the miraculating machine that is uh, surplus production, false production, uh, Marxist surplus production is how I read that and how I've seen that talked about. And then the celibate production is intensity. How does that, like, where does that fit into this? Because ultimately that that intensity is where apparently the subject uh, identifies with and believes they are themselves uh, sort of identified with. They're, that is their avatar, this, this uh, intense level of the result which is ultimately surplus production um if you can't tell my brain is slowly breaking as i say some of these things uh it, would it be worth to go through the last few chapter last few paragraphs and then spend some time chatting i'll put a poll into the uh discussion chat but um that's where i'm at is trying to figure out this the concept of intensity which is what they went over here, mm -hmm. what that literally means in terms of the signifier that's created from the miraculating machine. Yeah. So, so I, I just like to mention that, you know, it's intensive quantity. And so, you know, usually, uh, you know, in Kant's um, categories, quantity and quality go together or as, a, uh, as uh, two different kinds of categories. And, uh, but here, intensive quantity, <laughs> is uh, uh, indicating that it, it's some kind of non-dual thing between the dual of quality and quantity. And, uh, and so if you, if you look up the, uh, you know, the difference between extensive and intensive uh, quantity, um, you know, the, the intensive quantity is something like temperature that, that is um, across the whole body. Uh, rather than isolated to a piece of it. Yeah, um, I think it's important to know uh, two, two things on on this uh, intensive. Uh, one of the the connotations we can make with intensive here is not extensive, meaning there's no appeal to any sort of outside force. So all of the forces that are um, referenced 
in the formation of, of a, a subject or some sub, such subjectivity regards a, an, a fully imminent sphere of forces. Everything's happening here. There's no transcendent outside coming in. Uh, quantities in this case is, I, I think just very simply, we're referring to some zone or region of these uh, of the sphere of production that will then get referred to um, or get conjoined with this conjunctive synthesis, right? Uh, one of the things that we should avoid is, is talking about these things in terms of it being dialectical, because there is no uh, subsumption of the the antagonist who fails to overcome the other rival. Here, the the antagonists are the um, the, the desiring machines, the paranoiac machine, and then the miraculating machine. The, this force of attraction and repulse, repulsion is is thoroughly maintained. One force never fully overcomes the other. However, um, inside the uh, w- within the conjunctive synthesis, however, we get <clears throat> this other thing that's produced, the celibate machine, which produces a form of quote-unquote reconciliation. Now, looking at the beginning of this top paragraph here, um, it says the question, uh, what does the celibate machine produce? And then after a few sentences, he says, there is a schizophrenic experience of intensive quantities in their pure state to the point that it's almost unbearable. A celibate, and I'll underline this, misery and glory experience to the fullest. Mm-hmm. So this notion of a pleasure combines this sort of unbearability of like, wow, there, there's just this immense fucking tension that needs to be resolved, reconciled in some way or another. But there's also a sort of pleasure. Once the celibate ma- machine comes in, it it does it not that it tamps it down or it, it, it seems like it encloses it in one way. Um, if we want to use the Kafka example, the paranoiac machine is is hidden, it seems, behind the celibate machine, or is at least in some way obscured by it. Uh, maybe the the better way to think about it is there's a reconciliation. Look, look, there's this tension here. I understand the tension to be this way. It, imagine thinking that being a subject uh, in and of itself is just fucked, man. Oh man, there's like here I am. I'm just in this body. This is well, this is just the way it is. And just that that moment of reconciliation of understanding, like wow, I'm, I'm I exist inside this thing that that I understand to be me. Now, this is what they're talking about, this delirium. I see this. I feel this. That experience of reconciliation emerges as this this basic phenomena, they say, the I see, I hear, I feel. Well, so on that, though, because uh, I know I'm now jumping around, uh, they actually talk specifically about the concept of I feel and how, uh, I think it's in uh, footnotes, actually. They talk about uh, the I feel uh, that people spend their time basically uh, attaching uh, feelings to a, 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 an organism rather than right. actually going the other way because the feelings, as we've been talking about throughout the book, the feelings, the desires, uh, all of that are as real as anything, if not more real. So mm-hmm. it's more that the organism actually attaches to the feelings. The the subject, the, the organism that is Brooks, not the subject that is Brooks, wanders the body without organs, a smooth surface sort of sloshing around. Uh, the desires happen all over the place. Uh, the miraculating machine shows up. Uh, it's there. They produce things alongside the paranoiac machine. Out comes this uh, intensive quantity, the celibate machine. I see that effectively, and I go, oh, that's Brooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, as the organism, have attached myself to this 
oh, that's where I am. That's that feeling is me. Whereas conventionally, and this is why it's, I think, maybe hard for my brain to wrap around it, very conventionally, uh, we are taught instead that the organism has the feelings rather than attaches itself when it sees the feelings. Yeah. I mean, here, here's a, an example. Imagine somebody going to uh, an analyst and saying, you know, I've been trying to do this PhD dissertation. I've been trying to write this album. I've been trying to start this business for so long, and I just feel so wholly inadequate, and I don't know how to explain it. Oh, it's interesting. Tell me about your mother. Oh, you've been wanting to have sex with your mother all along, right? And so what the analyst does in that, that's they dissociate the, 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 the feelings of the subject from the subject and, and move it to this, this, this imaginary lost object that just stands far outside the field by which those anxieties were produced. Where if we start boring into the feelings, we understand that the, the notion of I feel is just this basic phenomenon of like, this is how you have sort of wrapped around the reality that has produced you. Pulling back, pulling it back, Greg, um, there, was one, there was one example by Todd May in one of his lectures about Deleuze, right? When he talks about intensities and he offers a very good kind of conceptualization of this. And he says, well, picture a family and a kind of therapist session, you know, family therapy. And then something happens and the father goes off. He just, I don't know, goes ballistic. He starts shouting and he says, it's not that he was already embodying some emotion let's say anger, but that these intensities were just, that these intensities just found the way of actualizing themselves in this particular position, in this particular situation, right, through this uh, manifestation of anger. And this is, this was really helpful for me, at least, to understand what intensities mean. So these intensities are not, the, these intensities are not fixed intensities of a certain emotion, but rather, as they say in this, uh, in this chapter, even forces, right? They work sometimes together, sometimes, and more often than not, against each other uh, towards something different, towards a production or an actualization, however you want to picture this. And I think we can maybe uh, move on with yeah. the next. Sounds good. Yeah, let's go to yeah. the next. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, yes, please. Uh, the votes were, by the way, to pretty much burn through this. So let's try to get through this and then have a wonderfully I large mean, nightmare discussion. Okay, I can do this. Go for I it. This one. Go for it. Okay. So further, if we are to believe Judge Schraber's doctrine, attraction and repulsion produce intense nervous states that fill up the body without organs to varying degrees. States through which Schraber, the subject, passes, becoming a woman and many other things as well, following an endless cycle of eternal return. The breasts on the judge's naked torso are neither delirious nor hallucinatory phenomena. They designate, first of all, a band of, in a band of intensity, a zone of intensity on his body without organs. The body without organs is an egg. It is crisscrossed with axes and thresholds, with latitudes and long longitudes, and geodesic lines traversed <laughs> by... Tra traversed by gradients, marking the transition and the becomings, the destinations of the subject develop developing along these particular vectors. Nothing here is representative. Rather, it is all life and lived experience. The actual lived emotion of having breasts does not resemble breasts. It does not represent them. And more... <clears throat> and it does not represent them any more than a predestined zone in the egg resembles the organ that, it's, that it is going to be stimulated to produce within itself. Nothing but bands of intensity, potentials, 
thresholds and gradients, a harrowing, emotionally overwhelming experience which brings the schizo as close as possible to matter, to a burning, living center of matter. Quote, this emotion situated outside of the particular point where the mind is searching for it, one's entire soul flows into this emotion that makes the mind aware of the terribly disgusting sound of matter and passes through its white hot flame, unquote. I think we've been circling around a lot of what's been uh, mentioned in this this mm-hmm. part of the reading here now for a while. Um, the the new thing that's introduced is this notion of a body without organs being a kind of egg. Mm-hmm. Andrew, what, what, what's your take on that? I find it an extremely important juxtaposition, right? And this, uh, I think, also goes further to a thousand plateaus. And uh, maybe one of the guys that were in the uh, section discussion from a couple of nights ago, the recap, can comment on this because I think we touched upon this particular egg point. Maybe Kent or Doug, someone who was, somebody who was there just throwing the ball out there. Um. For me, that when when he mentions the egg, it brings up uh, the whole idea of uh, it, that comes in alchemy. There's a uh, uh, if you if you read Jung, you know he wrote these two alchemical books. One of them uh, is called Aeon. The other is called uh, the Mysterium Conjunctus. And uh, and he he tries to deal with uh, what you know what's described in alchemy and. Uh, there is a uh, uh, a kind of uh, state that is described in alchemy, which is like an egg. It's a it's an enclosed state, and so that's that's what I'm reminded of by that. Um. Can I cut in? Yes. Mm, yeah. Uh, so a couple chapters later in the book, they uh, revisit this point and clarify it further, uh, talking about their external critique of Oedipus. Um, there they're trying to refute the idea that Oedipus is kind of already there inherently. And they talk about how an egg doesn't have organs in it. It just has places that will become organs. And while external factors like the heat of a mother hen, for example, may stimulate it to develop this organizational structure of organs, um, this doesn't mean that the external factors cause the organs. So in just the same way, the body without organs has these potentialities built into it that may later be stimulated by something else. And, and they, they do, that's what they're talking about with that uh, stimulated to produce line. Right. And, and this takes us back to the, the idea of Simondon and uh, uh, transduction of autogenesis, the, the, the production of the individual. In the production of the individual, we, we start off, you know, in, in the, you know, like a single cell and then develop and those cells differentiate themselves and become the organization of the body eventually. Yeah, I think one of the important highlights here, too, is is that what happens on of the body without organ, uh, organs as an egg, the, the crisscrossing of the geodesic lines, the, the intensity, uh, is not representative. The, there's an anti-representationalism that's at work here. They, any sort of intensities that flow from this, um, this sort of intensive interaction on the surface of the body without organs is not instantiating any sort of fixed um, 
signifier or sign or form, platonic form, if you will. All of these things are themselves the actual lived systems, as they say. And this, I think, will spread into other parts of their philosophy later on when they start talking about the way that language is used, for example. That even language has an anti-representational element to it. Or there's, better to say, there's a way that we can think about language that is anti-representational and is an effectuation of intensity. All right. Uh, with that, I'll I'll read the next chapter and we'll uh, keep charging ahead because I think this is, again, all of this, we, we're going to have a, a fun after discussion. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, how is it possible that the schizo was conceived of as the autistic rag, separated from the real and cut off from life, that he is so often thought to be? Worse still, how can psychiatric practice have made him this sort of rag? How can it have reduced him to this state of a body without organs that has become a dead thing? This schizo who sought to remain at that unbearable point where the mind touches matter and lives its every intensity, consumes it. And shouldn't this question immediately compel us to raise another one, which at first glance seems quite different? How does psychoanalysis go about reducing a person, who this time is not a schizophrenic but a neurotic, to a pitiful creature who eternally consumes daddy and mommy and nothing else whatsoever? How could the conjunctive synthesis of, so that's what it was, and so it's me, have been reduced to the endless dreary discovery of Oedipus? So it's my father, my mother? We cannot answer these two questions at this point. We merely see how very little the consumption of pure intensities has to do with family figures and how very different the connective tissue of the so-its is from the Oedipal tissue. And I, I love this section because it's a lot in very direct. Uh, when we talk about the title being anti-Oedipus, finally we start to see exactly what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, uh, Craig? Yeah, that's right. I think... Uh, here is we we get the first sort of salvo against the the figure of Oedipus, um, or one of the the first salvos against the figure of Oedipus, um, and the notion that intensities uh, when we're talking about intensity, they are not reducible to the Oedipal figure. So I I don't know if there's much more that I can add. This is this is sort of like a, a taunt. <laughs> you know, they're they're sort of brandishing their weapon now, and um, we're getting ready to move in on parole. Shall we move along? So could you continue reading? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do the next uh, paragraph. How can we sum up this entire vital progression? Let us trace it along a first path, the shortest route, the points of disjunction on the body without organs form circles that converge on the desiring machines. Then the subject produces as a residuum alongside the machine appendix, or as a spare part adjacent to the machine, passes through all the degrees of the circle and passes from one circle to another. And this is what I was talking about earlier, I think when Park Bench uh, jumped in. This subject itself is not at the center, which is occupied by the machine, but on the periphery with no fixed identity, forever decentered, defined by the states uh, through which it passes. Uh, thus the circles traced by Beckett's unnameable, a succession of irregular loops, now sharp and short as in a, the waltz, now of a parabolic sweep, with Murphy, Watt, Marrier, etc., as states without the family having anything whatsoever to do with all of this, or to follow a path that is more complex but leads in the end to the same thing, 
by means of the paranoiac machine and the miraculating machine. The proportions of attraction and repulsion on the body without organs produce, starting from zero, a series of states in the celibate machine. And the subject is born of each state in the series, is continually reborn of the following state that determines him or her at a given moment, consuming, consummating all these states that cause him or her to be born and reborn, the live state coming first in relation to the subject that lives it. And so once again, we have this notion of a decentered subjectivity. Uh, there is no central subjectivity to which all these intensities re return. It is the subject itself that gets swept along in the uh, continuous evolution of intensities. And maybe unless there's a question on that, maybe we can actually get through uh, the rest of this today. And I love the next paragraph that's coming. I was just going to say, it feels a little, uh, it feels a bit like doing drugs. Probably the difference between being on a trip and passing through whatever is given to you in that moment. So it's trying to like hunker down, settle down is like, no, but I'm real. I'm, I'm really here. And I'm, I'm the one who's experiencing all of these. And I, I cannot be erased. I cannot be changed into something different. Just this is a tangential point, but part of this decentering of the subject sort of reminds me of that. A different way in which intensities are interacted with or passed through. Well, I think that's core and basic to the, this entire chapter where it talks about effectively the subject being almost a miasma, just sort of wandering between desires, around desires, through intensities, through gradients, and by seeing the moment that the celibate machine operates and identifying with that, it's more the organism has chosen the feeling that it, it is going to have rather than just having the feeling and identifying it with so directly. And I, I, I love that uh, very, it's, a, it's a, of course, all this stuff is nuanced, but it's a very nuanced shift to make sure that we see they're talking about the subject basically being a, uh, surrounded by a million desiring machines pulled in all those desires but the way we identify is through those miraculating puzzle solving oh that's what i am hello cool intense moments rather than the almost banality of the rest of the desiring machines yeah and this is what the next section talks about so maybe we should just jump yeah we should we, we should, should we should yes yeah okay so who wants to do this one Oh, it's a, it's a long one. Why don't we break yeah, this maybe, one up? Maybe we can uh, split it in two. Yeah. yeah. Andrew, why don't you go, and then when you're done, yeah, I'll, I'll start. Okay. This is what Kosowski has admirably, admirably demonstrated in his commentary on Nietzsche, the presence of the Stimmung as a material emotion, constitutive of the most lofty thought and the most acute perception. Quote, the centrifugal forces do not flee the center forever, but approach it once again, only to retreat from it yet again. Such is the nature of the violent oscillations that overwhelm an individual so long as he seeks only his own center and is incapable of seeing the circle of which he himself is a part. For if this oscillations overwhelm, overwhelm him, it is because each one of them corresponds to an individual other than the one he believes himself to be from the point of view of the unlocatable center. As a result, an identity is essentially fictitious, and a series of individualities must be undergone by each of these oscillations, so that, as a consequence, the fictitiousness 
of this or that particular individuality will render all of them necessary." End quote. The forces of attraction and repulsion, soaring ascents and plunging falls, produce a series of intensive states based on the intensity equal to zero that designates the body without organs. Uh, quote, but what is most unusual is that there again ain't that what what is most unusual is that there here again a new afflux is necessary merely to signify this absence end quote. there is no nietzsche the self the professor of philology who suddenly loses his mind and supposedly identifies with all sorts of strange people rather there is the nietzschean subject who passes through a series of states and who identifies these states with the names of history. Quote, every name in history is I, end quote. The subject's... Oh, shall I pick it up from there? Yeah, sure. Okay. The subject spreads itself out along an entire circumference the center of which has been abandoned by the ego. At the center is a desiring machine, the celibate machine of the eternal return, a residual subject of the machine. Nietzsche, as subject, garners a euphoric reward, voluptus, from everything that this machine turns out, a product that the reader had thought to be no more than uh, the fragmented oeuvre by Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Nietzsche believes that he is now pursuing not the realization of a system, but the application of a program in the form of residues of the Nietzschean discourse, which have now become the repertory, so to speak, of historicism. It is not a matter of identifying with various historical personages, but rather identifying the names of history with the zones of intensity on the body without organs. And each time Nietzsche as subject exclaims, they're me, so it's me. No one has ever been as deeply involved in history as the schizo or dealt with it in this way. He consumes all of universal history in one fell swoop. We begin defining him as homo, homo natura, and lo and behold, he has turned out to be homo historia. This long road that leads from the one to the other stretches from Holderlin to Nietzsche, and the pace becomes faster and faster. The euphoria could not be prolonged in Nietzsche for as long a time as the contemplative alienation of Holderlin. The vision of the world granted to Nietzsche does not inaugurate a more or less regular succession of landscapes or still lifes extending over a period of 40 years or so. It is rather a parody of the process of reconciliation of an event. A single actor will play the whole of it in pantomime in the course of a single solemn day because the whole of it reaches expression and then disappears once again in the space of just one day, even though it may appear to have taken place between December 31st and January 6th in a realm above and beyond the usual rational calendar. So maybe I can just um, read a couple of passages from The Logic of Sense which sure. deal directly with Nietzsche and what's been going on in this paragraph specifically. So this is from pages 109 and 110. Nietzsche's discovery lies elsewhere when, having liberated himself from Schopenhauer and Wagner, he explored a world of impersonal and pre-individual singularities, a world, a world he then called Dionysian or of the will to power, a free and unbound energy. These are nomadic singularities which are no longer imprisoned within the fixed individuality of the infinite being, nor inside the sedentary boundaries of the finite subject. So this is something neither individual nor personal, but rather singular. And just jumping to the end, this uh, 
section, kind of. The subject is this free, anonymous, and nomadic singularity, which traverses men as well as plants and animals independently of the matter of their individuation and the forms of their personality. Quote unquote, over man means nothing other than this, the superior type of everything that is. This is a strange discourse which ought to have a renewed philosophy and which finally deals with a sense not as a predicate or a property, but as an event. Uh, and this is what I wanted to read. No, those were uh, those were great sort of passages to connect to what's going on here. Um, mm -hmm. This idea of the nomadic subject, which yeah. comes up in other <laughs> Deleuzian literature, is 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 alluded to here. Um, the one line that stands out to me is in the Holderlin passage. As a result, or I'm sorry, not the Holderlin passage, but the uh, the Klesowski passage. As a result, an identity is essentially fortuitous and a series of individualities that must be undergone by each of these oscillations and so forth. This idea that the discovery of one's identity is a fortuitous one or a surprise event, you know, comes through Klesowski here. And I, I think maybe just as a, a sort of way to prime the discussion that occurs after this, um, think about the ways in which the notion of individuality or identity familiar to the early modern philosophy or through the Enlightenment and and through other philosophers up until this point becomes challenged by this notion that, um, sure, you are a subject. Um, however, the, the notion that you are self-locating as a subject in this sort of complex configuration of intensity in no way presupposes its fixity, its universality, or its transcendence. Um, and just going back to what Saki had said earlier, it's like going on a trip. I mean, if you go into this thought and really begin to see yourself as this entity which has located itself amidst this mass, this, and, and to use the word that Brooks used, as, as this miasmic being, which through the words, I feel, I sense, I think, bring that sort of amorphous blob of subjectivity together in this sort of metastable self-locating entity i mean it, it it's really a trip to think think about that i mean thinking about our transience in the world vis-a-vis uh, -vis the the complexity and just massive edifice of desiring machines that our subjectivities exist within it's just it's phenomenal to to think that way and to be awestruck um I mean, just as a sort of philosophical note, elevating this notion of being wonderstruck, awestruck, or having a fortuitous discovery seems at the to me to be almost one of these sort of foundational, like emotional or phenomenological states of the philosopher, the aha moment um, to discover the thing that has been there all along and has been um, evolving in, in this sort of massive continuum in which we exist. Um, okay. Anybody else on that? I, I just uh, like to mention that one of the things that they're referring to is the fact that Nietzsche, toward the end, before his uh, uh, his breakdown, um, wrote uh, some letters in which he uh, signed those letters as Dionysius and signed them as uh, different characters rather than himself. And so that's what they're they're talking about when they're talking about Nietzsche identifying with these uh, other <clears throat> figures in history because he, he actually wrote letters where he signed with, with the names yeah. of, of, for instance, Dionysius. 
Yeah. Yeah. Somebody mentioned Kierkegaard too, who also used pseudonyms. Yeah. Um, I think if you take any uh, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard existentialism course <laughs> in, in philosophy at your university. Fair, yeah. yeah. One of the questions at the end is going to be, why did Nietzsche choose to um, include all of his names um, or basically reconcile all of the names that he, he had chosen or that he identified with in his philosophy, whereas Kierkegaard made his identities distinct and yeah. they, they, they did not get linked together. And here Nietzsche becomes the, the exemplar or the avatar of, this, of the Deleuzean ethics that we're seeing unfold on the page right here. And this also happens with uh, Fernando Pessoa, not necessarily a philosopher, but more on the literature side, but essentially, I mean, can be labeled as an existentialist, as an existentialist, at least, at least in some literature sense, who also used uh, many pseudonyms right, throughout his life. May I ask, I don't know, are we, are we at that stage where we can ask questions? Yes, we're always at that stage. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that this draws my... Um, I, I'm a question one. So this is just a question because I just my my nature of antagonistic forces is what is what's propelling me to ask this question. So the reason I preface is is because of the way Camus objects to the way Sartre defined existentialism, and I I'm under the now I'm again someone correct me if I'm wrong with my understanding. Camus' objection is is prefaced by the idea that we don't define our essence in such a way we keep define it existentially. He he defines himself as an absurdist because he's he's trying to define himself through his existence without actually trying to impose himself over it. Does that make sense? Um, my question then is: Are we then? defining these types of organizational forces as something that we are cognitively cognitively aware of or are we trying to organize them based on what is is driven within us that we become conscious of afterwards does that make sense i, I think that's a great question uh, and i kind of want to have it answered particularly as it relates to deleuze and Guattari's use of klosowski here Possible. Okay. Cool. If I miss, yeah. Oh, good. The 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 identity is a really fortuitous line. Uh, and like earlier, Park Bench had a confusion, and what I'm about to say wasn't Park Bench's confusion, but it was this additional thing that came up while, Craig, you were trying to address it of um, a, a subject, a use whatever term you want to use, original fundamental subject, but the concept being that a subject that is already formed and assigned, or a series of subjects that are already formed and assigned that you simply... Oh, Saki, you cut out. Hello. I... We haven't reached the point where what I'm going to say needs to stick, but it's important, I think, to just flag it down right now as early as possible that I really don't think their move is going to be to say that, to establish, to try and say that there is a transcendental subject is incorrect. The subject is actually decentered. Their move is going to be a lot more complicated of, hey, 
here is one particular way in which the subject is formed, this much more amorphous, this nomadic way depends on its connections and recording. Here is this other thing that's happening, the flip side of the process desiring production that is edipalization, where the there are stabilities assigned to them or pre-assigned coordinates assigned to bodies of this is the subject that you are, these are the subjects that you will become, you don't really have a choice in the matter about it. Where to do that is to remove the fortuitous nature of identity, I think, at least the connotation that that phrase has here of no, you don't just encounter the world and encounter, encounter certain intensities and then identify yourself with those temporarily and move on. You're given this is what you are and you cannot be anything but this. And that removes chance out of the equation. And I think that's where that distinction is where we can start thinking about doing Deleuzean ethics. Because I think, what is the way in which the subject is forming, or what is the way in which you're trying to establish a relationship to intensity? Right, but that's that's exactly my. That's question. where I fall to Zarathustra, though. Like yes. that's when I have the same question. Because there, because Nietzsche's whole like I would call a thread of work is defined by his definition of agonistics, and I think there's a book. Mm-hmm that I have that's been discussing this, where he takes the example of Homer, Homer's of Achilles and Hector, right? Mm-hmm. And Achilles takes the idea of conquest to the, to its, sorry, Achilles takes the idea of conquest to its extreme, right? By, by, by tying up Hector after he kills him and tying him up on his chariot, Right. That yeah. by by the, the the reason I'm giving I'm relaying this is because it's the logical end of of vanquishing with with the idea of conquest, right? Mm-hmm. So with with this definition of organizing these desires, right? And we're we're defining an organization of of different of d- d- these different concepts in such a way where there's always going to be a backdrop at that 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 term that that french term that brooks talked about before where we fall back upon something right yeah. and that's what i'm trying to grasp here where we're falling back on something that's that surface area where we start from mm-hmm. that that then defines what we do in 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 not the term reactive but in in, in a sense of defining ourselves in that context right does that make sense we're, yeah I think I know what you're getting at. Yeah, if you could just, yeah. Um, maybe one of the ways to think about this is, um, and I'm kind of moving away from anti Oedipus a little bit here, but maybe the way that Deleuze thinks about problems and truth. And I kind of want to connect it to the, the formation of a subject. I mean, at, at the level of um, the production of subjectivity, as we've already seen, um, there hides uh, this this notion of a paranoiac machine behind the celibate machine. That is to say, behind every uh, subjective identity, there exists some um, uh, confluence of tensions, right? And <clears throat> maybe one way that we can think of the confluence of tension uh, in relation to how we relate with ourselves as subjects uh, could be seen as a kind of complex, like it, to use the language of Carl Jung. Um, and how is it that a complex gets resolved? Well, 
in order for us to um, to say to ourselves in in a sort of psychoanalytic way, like ah that solves the problem, uh, or that's what I've been getting at, or that's what this means all along. It really, what, what matters the most is what is decisive for that subject. Is the tensions that, that, that bring about the subject, are they reconciled in such a way that, that truly reconciles them, that is decisive, that is, that is to say true in one sense for that subject? And I would say that this truth is always tentative. This is one of the problems in in the sort of Deleuzian metaphysics is that truth as a proposition or is is something that always suf- suffers under the vagaries of time and the evolution of to use the language of uh, anti-Oedipus here of desiring machines. Things are always evolving in such a way as to unsettle propositions. In the same way, things evolve in such a way to under unsettle the proposition, quote unquote, of the subject. Um, so at any given juncture in a subjectivity's point of evolution, I think there is a, a way in which something is decisive for them. The, the issue on an ethical level is, can that subject problematize or conceptualize their suffering as a subject and their existence in the world uh, in a way that's adequate to identify the the sort of underlying paranoiac machines, the, the, the underlying force of attraction and repulsion? You know, it makes me think of something else that I think is in Daybreak, if I'm not mistaken, where Nietzsche writes about shame. And one of the things that he says about shame is that there's a part of shame that we should embrace, and there's another part of shame that we should jettison. Shame uh, forces a, it makes us feel the force of conscience in a way that can be debilitating to us, but at the same time motivates us to action. And I think what the, the Nietzsche example here in, in Klotowski uh, uh, highlights for us is Nietzsche's ability to sort of be, be, spurred upon, be spurred on by all the drives, not to exclude the constitutive identities that have made him up as a philosopher and, and also, you know, as a historian, um, and not to sort of like land on one drive and say, hey, this is the one, this is who I am. He's saying right. that there's been a succession that has comprised who, who I am today. And, and all of those things, I mean, to kind of put it in a, into more of a Deleuzian frame now, kind of exist, uh, like as, as a philosopher and writer, exist in the present moment with Nietzsche. You know, uh, they've never been fully destroyed or abandoned. There is no Ozymandias in the, in the world of Deleuzian monuments. Every monument stands until the end of time. And they can they 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 interact with one another, uh, and they sort of consist together in a field with one another in such a way as never to be dismissed from the the sort of identity with a capital I of Nietzsche. Um, and so I think, yeah, go go but ahead. But then does that but does that presuppose a sense as you were talking about a, a sense of tension that is unreconcilable? Right. You, you talk about this idea that we get to a point where, as Will described, where they take they, some people seize upon the, these moments and, and gain a sense of satisfaction out of them. But, but what you're discussing here, what you just said right now, is that satisfaction is almost illusory. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, it, oh, that, that's, that's, yeah. And I mean, man, now we're talking about, 
I mean, we're going way ahead of ourselves in some ways, but I think what Deleuze will say later on is that our ability, and in other places, is that our ability to embody uh, new affects and a multiplicity of affects will basically, I, I mean, I'm just kind of riffing here to put in my terms, sort of expand our tolerance for the kinds of tensions that we are willing, um, that we allow ourselves to experience. I mean, what Nietzsche is pointing out in the Daybreak passages is like, hey, there's some people who can take this shit and there's, a, there's some people who can't. The question is, how does one become the kind of person who does? Um, and I, to me, I think that's interesting. I mean, that's essentially, you know, for me anyway, one of the ways to frame Nietzsche's project is, is you know, how do we, how do we sort of construct for ourselves a life in which we're able to swallow any pill that it gives us. And just bringing it back to the Deleuzian level, um, there are ways in which subject that there are ways in which subjectivity is formed that are more or less constrained to kind of go back to what Saki said. Some of them are um, exclusive forms of subject or basically excluded and included forms of subjectivity. Uh, under capitalism, for example, we are constrained to experience ourselves. Uh, we're, we're free to experience ourselves in, in a certain number of ways, but there are very specific ways in which we cannot identify as a subject uh, or act as a certain kind of subject without either being killed or imprisoned or something like that. Um, so, I, yeah. Well, one thing I'd like to mention is that, uh, you know, in uh, Being in Nothingness, Sartre more or less defines the subject as decentered based on nothingness, this idea of nothingness, which seems to be a kind of precursor to uh, Derrida's. And right about here, we lost about six minutes of our contra. I have no idea why. But I uh, just wanted to let you know that's why the next thing may seem disjointed. So we're going to head right back and let Kent keep talking. Then, uh, you know, it seems to me that that's what Deleuze is um, trying to get to, is what is a positive way of viewing the disinteredness and uh, and and in that positivity aligning with Nietzsche, who wants a, a uh, positive description of reality as well. Yeah, because it uh, seems like before we get to Deleuze, we get this kind of um, refrain from from the existentialists that say that they want to move away from kind of a universal conception of like quote unquote man. Uh, man possesses uh, human nature. This human nature, which is the concept that, of that which is human, it is found in all people. Which is that each person is a particular example of the universal concept of the person, which is from uh, existentialism to humanism, um, and then. I think this is that next leap, oh, and it's almost a, a critique of of Sartre's negative use of of the subject, which is that it's it's this unattainable that you can't secure the nothingness within the subject. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. that's the exact opposite of that. Yeah, I'd just like to mention that uh, you know recently, I, uh, with a reading group I've been part of, we've been reading Being in Nothingness and. Uh, you know, Sartre has kind of been forgotten in continental philosophy. Um, but when when you reread it, you realize that uh, not not just Deleuze, but also Zizek and uh, Badiou are are uh, still revisiting all of those issues that Sartre brought up in being a nothingness. 
Okay, this, this is the uh, for itself and itself paradigm you touched upon uh, previously. Well, that's the main the, the yeah. main thing in being in nothingness is this yeah. de definition of, um, of being in itself and self consciousness as the for itself in relationship to the in itself, mm -hmm. and it's defined in terms of nothingness. It's kind of like everything being sucked into a black hole. Consciousness mm -hmm. is seen as kind of everything being sucked into a black hole. It definitely is a text worth worth reading, but not in relationship specifically to this, because being in nothingness is as much a response to to Heidegger as as it is anything else. It, I mean, it is probably the great existential text as it relates to impact on in American academic circles. But uh, Kent's right. I went to uh, Spep this year, and there was almost nothing on Sartre. There was a mountain on Heidegger, Merleau Ponty, stuff like that. So, even in like academic philosophy with like tweedling mustaches and things like that, they, they've seemed to have forgotten Sartre, which is a bummer. I know actually, I have a uh, there's somebody that I know um, who's in grad school and they wanted to study Sartre, and they uh, the, his department really discouraged it. And it's a continental philosophy department. Yeah, that's that's a huge bummer. There really isn't a ton like that. That's what stinks about academic philosophy is if you can't find a program that is willing to 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 let you do the work you want to do, particularly at the MA level, it's a little bit uh, more lenient at the PhD level because if as long as you can find like a group of people, but it doesn't matter. What I, the reason I'm making this point here is that like I think Sartre uh, has a larger impact on particularly Guattari here then is sometimes overtly stated, or at least that's what I've understood from like my pedantic reading of their biographical stuff. So I love seeing sort of um, the intellectual history play out here. Well, one of the things that you can see is that difference and repetition could be seen as a rewriting of being a nothingness because it, you know it's repetition for itself. It's difference in itself. So the, the fundamental distinction is between for itself and in itself, and where Sartre went into the for itself in depth and, and created a model of reflectivity uh, around that, uh, Deleuze instead is going into the in itself and trying to figure out, you know, what is the structure of the in itself, which, which uh, Sartre more or less just leaves, uh, uh, you know, unexplored. Yeah, he kind of he kind of leaves it as a mark of like what is authenticity. You know, every every undergrad gets this sort of um, this understanding of the in itself as the as the uh, the cafe attendant who pours a little bit too specifically. The coffee is a little too attentive, um, and then there's obviously the concept of transcendence and, and facticity, where there's this facticity of the cafe attendant, this facticity of the grocery store clerk, um, but. Yeah, no, Deleuze is dealing with it at a much more theoretical level than even sometimes Sartre does. I mean, I'm only a little bit over halfway through being a nothingness. It's a difficult text, um, but yeah. Yeah. So, so this, this relationship between in itself and for itself is the heart of the idea of decenteredness because whatever is in itself is complete and total, but in consciousness, you can never be that. And so the, the, the consciousness is always decentered never never quite attaining the uh, the the, uh, the completeness of in itself mm -hmm. 
And so, but but see, the thing is that that's all uh, centered around this idea of, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, of nothingness as being the the basis for that. But if you wanted to come up with a positive view of what is this decenteredness, then that's more difficult. But then bringing it back to these these kind of drives that exist, these oscillating intensities. Um, for the philosophy that kind of precedes this with the, the in itself and the for itself there for authenticity, there's this, this attempt to balance it. There's this attempt to, to come to a conclusion, to resolve these tensions. And again, I, I just return to, you know, while these oscillations overwhelm the person, um, they, they have to kind of, they, they can't be resolved. Uh, I, it, it's just such a break from from all continental work that I had read up to this point. And it like required a, a cognitive shift for me that was just oh, like like just like crazy. Um, and, you know, there's this there is no Nietzsche the self professor of philology who suddenly loses his mind. There is, uh, you know, and it ends with every name in history is I. It's just this this kind of I don't want to use the word wrong, but the sort of nomadic um, wandering uh, through through everything ranging from from history to the to the uh to the the titles given to individuals, and I'd, I I think this is just so different from from all other works that I've read. Yeah, I I think the the language is is really something that we want to try to get right. Like the term "resolved," for example, does that do the same work as "reconcile"? I, I ask mm-hmm. myself questions like that, you know, as I hear people speak. Um, and and how does like for me the interesting question that I'm going to leave this reading with is how does the notion of reconciliation um, sort of get uh, how does that notion get reconciled with the notion of uh, being wonderstruck or to be in awe? Because it seems that those two concepts or those two movements in, in themselves form a kind of tension and are kind of opposites. When something is reconciled, what does it mean? That means in some sense there will be no surprises or the surprise is done. But this reconciliation comes in the form of a surprise. It comes in the form of being awestruck. It comes in the form of a fortuitous discovery. And it seems like this the notion that anything could ever be resolved once and for all, I mean, at this point, it seems like that should be completely off the table. But at the same time, um, the language that we're using to describe the concepts, what, what, what is the work that it's doing for us? And um, I mean, a, as a metaphysician, I would say that this is what I'm, I'm trying to suss out in Deleuze and Guattari. Is there something that they missed or overlooked? And it seems in, in, some, in some ways they've done the work to, to make sure that we don't find a gap there, or at least that we are able to understand, for example, how something can go from the level of being uh, a tension of two rivals to the production of something else. Um, and how does that happen? Well, it happens through a delirium of sorts and the way that the, this tension becomes expressed. And it comes in this word, I. And I thought that was a real creative way to get to the word I in their philosophy. 
Cool. I like I like that. I think mm -hmm. uh, that's actually going to be how we end uh, today's session. Um, I think we're going to stick around for a little bit more conversation if anyone wants to, but we're going to go ahead and uh, finish the recording here. We'll be back Monday to go over uh, chapter four, section four, actually this time. I'm, I'm getting it right. Uh, eventually we'll be out of this quarantine, but for now, uh, we look forward to this. Thank you all for joining, and please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you want to take part, help us, be involved next week, whatever it may be. Thank you guys so very, very much. All right, thank you. Yep. Hurrah!